Bonjour. I'm Terrence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live and almost every week from Café Terrence in Paris's Troisième Arrondissement. This program is being sponsored by a generous contribution from the Billy Cohn Collection. Well, I'm, I'm on the line with Mary V. Deborn. And in just a moment after I recite all of her accomplishments, she'll tell me what the V stands for. Biographer of Norman Mailer, Henry Miller, Louise Bryant, Peggy Guggenheim, and most recently in 2017, Ernest Hemingway. So Mary, what does the V stand for, or is it totally fictitious? <laughs> no, it's and it's nothing glamorous. It's Vance, as okay. in Cyrus Vance, the inventor Cyrus of Vance. the Reaper. Okay. Okay. And that was a that was a given name or you selected it? No, it's given. <laughs> and now, you know, you may be the only woman who's written extensively about Hemingway without being married to him. Is that a fair statement? <laughs> yes, it is actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I doubt you Go ahead. I, I just never put it that way in my mind, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I would say you're you're the one. I mean, I know Mary Welsh and, uh, and Martha Gellhorn had mentioned her. And I suspect the other two at some point had said something in print. The other two wives. Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Well, you know, when the, we we talked actually in 2017, a print yes, interview, which which I published today, which was quite quite successful. And if I'm not mistaken, you were also a friend of our friend uh, Deirdre Bear. Yes, I am. Or I was. It's too, very yeah, sad we, about her. It's kind of young. Yeah, I spoke to her uh, two weeks beforehand. Oh, she and, sure, yeah. Yeah, it was just no, uh, it, and it wasn't COVID. It just came out of the blue. It did, yeah. It was yeah. too bad. But she wrote that last book was wonderful, didn't you think? Well, yeah, and she got a, uh, she got a what is it, National Book Award. She had a major, she was, she, in, got, she was the shortlist for a major award. Yes, that's right. Probably shortlisted for the National Book Award. I think that's what it was. Yeah, that's a good book. Yeah, it is a good book. I've read, uh, you know, I, I first met her through Al Capone. And, uh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we well we are both from Monongahela, Pennsylvania, of all, all things. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I refer to her as the the other published author from Monongahela, Pennsylvania. <laughs> well, you know, since when you wrote the book, I mean, you know, my first experience with uh, Hemingway biography was Carlos Baker, which I suspect might have been yours. Oh, Yes. And that's still the, not the best book, but it's probably the most reliable compendium. Yeah, I always thought that Hotchner uh, became a, a lot more about him than it was about Hemingway. Oh, yeah. And um, you know. I mean, I think until mine, I mean, my well, biography yeah. was written with the, um, I think every, every biography that hasn't been done post-internet has mm -hmm. to be done. Because it has to be redone because sure. there's so much more out there. And most of Carlos Baker's, the facts that I couldn't find anywhere else, I could I could find online I mean, and, and figure out how he got them. So it's Carlos Baker, I think. And um, Who, by the way, I, trained A. Scott Berg to become a, a great biographer as well. He was a student at Princeton. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, you know. He's good, um, and he wrote the. You know, he's a good Hemingway critic as well, as opposed to a biographer. Yeah, he's not a hagiographer. He was serious about what he was doing. Yeah, yeah. You know, you mentioned you you did a lot of research in, in Austin at the Harry Ransom Center, 
And uh, I'm wondering if you were crossing paths with Robert Carroll in that fa fabulous facility. You know, no, I d never did. I didn't know that he spent time there. I must. I mean, LBJ records and manuscripts. Well, he spent an enormous amount of time there. Are, um, I'm sure they have a bunch there, too. Though it's odd because they're mostly literary. Yeah, I'm but, wondering, how did, uh, how did that facility get all of this Hemingway information? You know that's a good question because what that what the uh, what the um, humanities the HRC has is um, mostly his mother's papers. Mm -hmm. That's the big part of the collection, and I imagine that it was one of the kids who just you know went to the highest bidder. They have a lot of other Hemingway material. Well, I'm not so sure the the. Papers of his mother are really the, the bulk of what's there. Um, otherwise, most of his archives, thankfully, are in one place, which is the JFK Library, you know, in Boston, mm -hmm. um, which, strangely enough, has the Hemingway archives there. So, the, Well, it's not really. You know, how it happened was that Mary... Mary Hemingway, the fourth wife. Very Welsh, yeah. Yes, uh, Hemingway died, and meanwhile they had uh, Cuba had come in, and um, I, I'm sorry, Castro had come in in Cuba. <laughs> Into Cuba, right? And uh, and things were, um, you know, it was it was likely that the house was going to become property of the Cuban people, which it eventually did. But in the meantime, she wanted to get some stuff out of there, some of her belongings out of there. And I guess she thought the most value, among the most value were some artwork, including a mural that's a really celebrated uh, mural of the farm. And uh, so she appealed to JFK himself. Mm -hmm. And he went and negotiated with Cuba. I don't know if he talked to Castor himself and managed to get them to agree to that. So I'm not sure I exactly what she took out. I think she took a bunch of manuscripts, too, and her papers. And um, so what was there, you know, it, the furnishings and everything did go to the Cuban people. So JFK, so she was so grateful that she decided she'd just put those manuscripts there. And, you know, it's a vast archive. So well, easy, um, Easier for you than getting to Austin. Oh, sure. It was great for me, <laughs> frankly. But, um, and, it, and they, it's, there's a room, there's a Hemingway room, and it goes out right over the bay there. And so it feels like you're on the ocean. And it has a, I believe, a tiger rug shot by Hemingway and, you know, some artwork and a bust of him and so forth. Did he serve uh, you a daiquiri uh, when you sit down? Yes. Oh, is it a daiquiri or I never yeah, he, can remember? Yeah, he, he would he would drink a daiquiri as he drove to the Floridita. Yeah, and he, right. He'd present the more. empty glass to the bartender. <laughs> Those were the days I liked that he, he had in every car that he had, he built what was a drink holder, you know, way before drink holders existed. Sure. He thought they should have them. Yeah, well, it wasn't his morning cup of joe that was going into that. No, 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 into holder. the drink holder, no. Well, you, 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 talk about, you talk about his mother. Why don't we go back to that woman who had a, an enormous influence on him, and I, I suspect in his selection of women in his life. What did uh, you learn she, about, it, about mom? She did, and she was very important. And what um, 
I found was that uh, it, the other biographers didn't seem to have looked at those papers, at the mother's papers, because had they, there were all kinds of material there that they did not use. And this is including Carlos Baker. Of course, I don't know where they were then, um, the mother's papers. I'm, I imagine they were privately held by one of the kids. But uh, but without that, you didn't you could not get the full measure of the mother, and nor could you, nor her relationship with Ernest or her relationship with her husband. I mean, they're hugely important. They're um, and the yeah, she was. He did pick women in his mother's mold. She was like they were very alike. She and Ernest, and they both had an enormous amount of charisma, and. Grace, you know, was kind of larger than life, the same way that Ernest was. She was the kind of woman who, you know, took all the air out of the room because mm -hmm. she had it. Um, and uh, she, anyway, I found that she had had a lesbian relationship with this woman um, who had uh, um, been a, the like an au pair in the... Um, Hemingway household, and then um, this is in Oak Park. Yes, and then and went up with them in the summer to the lake, you know. And um, her name was Ruth Arnold, and she was younger. And anyway, I there's there's really quite explicit letters between the two. Nothing that says, you know, that was so wonderful that we made lesbian love, mm -hmm. <laughs> but you never have absolute proof of sexual relationships do you but um but and uh the husband's sort of discovery of this thing going on and he was you know furious and you know banished the woman from his house and it was a big big brouhaha and Hemingway knew it and Hemingway was sort of at the middle of it and he sided with his father and then it all calmed down and but what eventually happened, Clarence died about, killed himself, of course. As, about, as the family was prone to do. Oh, yeah. And with a Civil War pistol about 10 years later. And after that, Grace moved in with Ruth Arnold, who had had a brief marriage, but it hadn't worked out. And um, Ruth and Grace moved in together for the rest of their lives. Um and I think as a result of that, okay, first the whole family di dynamic was, you know, tremendously upset. And and I think that Ernest had a really, I mean, when you find out your mother was probably a lesbian, I mean, I think there, it's a hard thing to come to come to terms with. Well, certainly in the in the in the, you know in in the twenties. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just. And you know where he is, and so forth. And uh, but um, I think that as a result, I mean, he was always fond of lesbians, like um, Gertrude. Yeah, well, Gertrude's a good example because Gertrude and and uh, Grace, I always thought had a lot in common. They looked a little alike. They're both sort of statuesque women, and you know, also larger than life, and uh, and also you know quite critical of Ernest. Because um, Gertrude was not entirely a, an admirer, 
I think she she thought he was tremendously good looking and that he was going to have a brilliant future. But she detected some, you know, un, my favorite line is um, that she said about Ernest. She said, oh, yes, he's so interesting. But what he would be if he would really say he was what he was, mm-hmm. you know, and she leaves it to you to guess. Or to, you know, within guess is all that you can do. Because I don't know what she was talking about, but um, but it's fun to imagine. Anyway, that, so the mother was just enormously important. And, uh, and Hemingway maintained that he absolutely hated her. And I'd, certainly on some level he did. And he, he always told people that. But he was, he, he'd set up a trust for her and he was very... Um, you know, good to her financially over the years and, and loyal. And I don't think she wrote letters that he did not return. So it's a bit more complicated than I just hated my mother, that bitch, you know, sure. and leaving the country and everything. But no, it's no. almost a cliche at that point. I, I hated my right. mother. Yeah. You know. Right. I think you're right. I want to go back a little bit to the beginning, and then I want to talk about your work with uh, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick uh, in the context of where we are, which is a whole other thing to discuss. But uh, the very first thing I read, I mean, apart from uh, The Sun Also Rises, because like every kid in New York, a sophomore English, we had a choice between The Sun Also Rises and Willa Cather's My Antonia, you know, and no real guy in Brooklyn at 15 is going to read Willa Cather, for crying out loud. No. So I, it took me about 40 years to discover that in many levels uh, she was actually the better writer. I would almost say that Hemingway was more of a stylist, if I can say that, without the Hemingway guys coming after me. No, that's not a bad uh, distinction. So the first thing that I read that was not uh, fiction was byline Ernest Hemingway, which was a collection of the work he did for the Kansas City Star as a cub reporter, later the Toronto Star. And I'm, I'm not sure if any of the early uh, uh, Esquire and Collier pieces were in there, but you could see that he was beginning to craft a, a style, or at least the style evolved from that. Talk about that early work and what began to distinguish his writing, which made it just jump out at people as being so unusual. Well, the Kansas City Star had a um, very famous style sheet, and I think the first line is um, uh, is two act adjectives, and uh, and and adverbs even, and it was about you know how to be direct in a newspaper article, which is real different from how to be direct, say, in a short story. I mean, the genius that Hemingway had was in applying that to fiction, those those rules that are grammatical, stylistic and grammatical, and then, you know, they they devolve into what kind of punctuation you should use. And um, so he took those and applied them to fiction. And that resulted in something very different. And then the other thing I find it found was that he was reporting um, by cable when he was European correspondent for the Toronto Star, and he became fascinated with cable ease, which mm-hmm. maybe you're familiar. Cables went out when <laughs> I remember night letters and telegrams. You know, I'm not that young. Yeah, <laughs> but did they use cable ease like abbreviated? Um, Everything I, I, 
No, I remember Telegram, Telegrammies. Yeah. I used to write a movie column, and I was restricted to 500 words, and my editor used to say that I wrote Telegrams. <laughs> well, Telegrams is, anyway, it's not bad training for for uh, writing fiction. And then, you yeah, know... you boil down your thought, and you, you know, every yeah. every word and every punctuation counts. Yeah. And then some people even say that he picked that up later when he started... Um, using this sort of mock uh, Indian speech that Lillian Roth captured in her profile of him for the uh, New, Yorker. New Yorker, where he's sort of, he leaves out verbs, which is what you do, of course, in cable ease. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that was probably not a good result of, of right. um, the Kansas City style sheet and uh, cable ease, but it, they did have a really um, good salubrious effect on his writing, on his fiction. Well, as you know, his short stories. I, for example, I, uh, the Killers, with with which featured uh, Burt Lancaster, Eva Gardner, uh, a very very brief uh, appearance by William Conrad at the at the counter of the uh, the coffee shop in New Jersey, but really? literally, yeah, literally, he took one sentence from that book and turned it into a into. Well, he didn't. It was turned into a movie. I forget who the screenwriter was. Yes, I've heard that, that, you know, it's not from a story at all. But that's, uh, that's him. Isn't that a now? No, it's his book. That, you know, yeah, if you uh, watch the movie, I, and I, I want to believe that the title was also The Killers. But if you look, look at, the, uh, at the movie, you'll see it. And at the very beginning, you see William Conrad. You can see already he wasn't missing any meals in 1948 <laughs> or thereabouts, 49. Uh, you know, and then of course, you know, the wonderful Nick Adams stories. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, I'm a short story. I'm a fan of his short stories above all else, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I really like my favorite, I guess, is Snows of Kilimanjaro. Uh -huh. Because it's very autobiographical. That's the writer who is um, married to a rich woman. You can read that as Pauline, his second wife. Mm -hmm. And is um, has got uh, gangrene from a hunting injury, I believe, there in Africa, and uh, he's dying. And he reviews his entire life. And but the most meaningful to me, and he blames himself for, you know. Oh, you're talking having... about the book, not not the movie. Oh, that's right. Snows of Kilimanjaro is also a movie. Yeah, there were a lot of bad movies made from his work. Yeah, we had the Hemingway Film Festival here at home. Right. Um, there, <laughs> there are. Um, in fact, offhand, I can't think of a good one except The Killers. Well, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't dislike uh, the short, happy or unhappy life of Francis McComber. That's with I, Gregory Peck. Joan Bennett and uh, Robert Preston. Yeah, yeah, that you know. That was right. not a bad little movie. Didn't dislike you know. it. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, not quite an endorsement, but worth watching. Any story, any um, interpretation, though, of that story that comes down one way or the other on whether Mrs. McComber shot her husband, right. you know, then it's limited <laughs> as soon as they choose one, because I think Henry Hemingway meant uh, choose any or all of the above as to who shot him. Well, you leave, it, leave it open. 
you know, leave it open yeah. to interpretation. Uh, Howard yeah. Hawks was a friend of his, and he had, he had asked him what his worst book was, and he said, to have and have not. And of course, uh, Hawks made a great movie out of it, but kept yes, very little true. kept very little of the story. I mean, it didn't resemble the, the book no. at all. Uh, no, but that's kind of like <clears throat> the killers too. I mean, it mm -hmm. it takes a few words and extrapolates like a whole film universe from them. Absolutely. I think that that's right. That's a good film too. Well, how did uh, from what I understand, I've not seen the Burns documentary because I I don't get NPR here or P PBS. Eventually, I guess it'll be available to me. I've just seen some excerpts and some uh, conversations with uh, Novik and, and, and Ken Burns. But apparently, at work in this for about six and a half years, when did you get involved? Because I know you're on camera. No, I did. I got involved earlier than that. Um, I talked to them by phone a couple of times, and then I met with Lynn Novick. Well, you were still working on the book at the time. It hadn't been published yet. I was at, yeah, I think it might have been turned in, but... Oh, yeah. No, I was. I Because they definitely read my book before I was interviewed on camera. No, they they read it pretty soon after. I, I started to talk to them and just they wanted to know about Hemingway and just everything that I thought or um, how I viewed certain incidents in his life. I mean, it was so comprehensive. It was that was one of the most interesting experiences of my life from top to bottom from beginning to end because they're so smart the people who the Ken Burns people they're so smart and they do such good research and they've been together for my god 20 30 years if you go back the very first thing he did was the Brooklyn Bridge it was a short piece on on the Brooklyn Bridge yeah that's uh, right that was terrific before, before he did this I think it was only one hour but yeah his his writer uh has been with him uh he wrote the uh Joe Ward, Jeffrey Ward. Yeah, uh, right. He and Lynn have been together for a long time. Uh, so, you know, it's like having a, uh, a film crew in Hollywood uh, at Warner Brothers or MGM. People are working together over a long period of time. So yeah. there's a, the work it doesn't get easier in terms of the effort, but it gets easier that the day in and day out things that could be annoying uh, don't occur. Well, but, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, and... Um... For me, that it was that they were as obsessed by Hemingway as I was, so that we didn't need to say to each other, like, um, you know, that's when Pauline went to America while they were waiting for the 100 days to be up. I, we didn't have to establish facts. We just mm -hmm. had to sort of interpret them. <laughs> like, you know, it would be more like, why did um, Pauline, why did they actually agree to that? so on you know it was all interpretation and very little facts had to be exchanged but the the thing about their research what you know I've heard since what the Hemingwayites and a lot of people have said about this series and everybody has agreed nobody had seen about half of those photographs are new mm -hmm. and nobody had seen them before and I think and I think I'm a demon researcher, but like, I think that when you go to Hemingway's, you know, great nephew, Joe Schmo, and your Ken Burns, they're a lot, Joe Schmo is a lot more likely to produce photos than if I go to, you know, as a lowly biographer to Joe Schmo. Mm -hmm. That's all I can think of that, because I would not, there's no record of those photos on the internet and. And, the, and film footage, because I was heard, and 
through almost all of my research to complain that there was no footage of Hemingway. Mm -hmm. And there is one little film of um, a lot of, of a few foreign correspondents at Mont Saint-Michel in, in the Second World War. But as it turns out, as soon as you see the Ken Burns uh, series, you'll see there's a lot of footage. And eventually I found more too. There was um, Gary Cooper, um, there's a lot of footage of Hemingway and Gary Cooper that um, this is for uh, uh, for whom the bell tolls was he? Yeah, they. It, I believe that's when he met Cooper, but he, they were lifelong friends, and I actually had tended to um, minimize that. Lots of times when you're working on, you know, they try to say, "Oh, he was best friends with you know Humphrey Bogart or something," mm -hmm. and it's overblown and exaggerated. But he really was best friends with. Cooper, um, and I sort of outdoorsman. You know, he was from Montana. Uh, oh yeah, know, and an old man's I, man version of at the time. I, I might have this all wrong, but I think he converted to Catholicism because of a wife, which and which Ernest did because of Pauline. You mm. know, it wasn't relevant that he later dropped it, but um, no, I think you're right. I think you're right. Pauline Pfeiffer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then they, the, but really, it was kind of like changing a shirt. It didn't have any significant meaning to him, right? I don't exactly. Yeah. But then, right down to when uh, they came to their ends, and um, I believe Cooper had prostate cancer. He had cancer, mm -hmm. and um, they talked at the end, and and uh, um, their phone calls recorded somehow. And he said, um, "Ham, I think I'm going to get to the barn before you do." <laughs> And he did, like by about ten days, I think. And they were they were roughly the same age. I think Cooper was fifty nine when he died. And Hemingway uh, was sixty one. Yeah, so they were yes, very, that's very right. Close. Yeah, that's Extremely right. Close. So the, they. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. You know, when you would one of the things that uh, came out of the book uh, is a, a lot about his relationships with women, not about his uh, alleged bisexuality or the suggestion of it, but his 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 dealing with gender issues and uh, a, a lot of material that obviously Carlos Baker didn't talk about. Uh, and this again, predates uh, cancel culture and, and me too. So as you were working uh, with Burns and Novick on this, how did, how did that zeitgeist impact uh, your work on the, um, on the film? Okay. Well, by then um, you couldn't ignore it. Um, that he published a, a posthumous book of his was published, The Garden of Eden, mm -hmm. and that is just full of gender switching. There's a guy and his wife, and Hemingway had all these things associated with his, you know, sort of kinks, I guess, um, including hair color and the length of their hair, and he liked to have his cut so it was the same as his wives, and he liked to diet and so forth. Um, so it's all kind of, and that's in the the, the Garden of Eden, and you, it's not, you can't quarrel with it. And then he's, um, you start seeing it in his letters, and I don't know if you know the story of his son, um, Gregory, who was a lifelong cross-dresser. And well, at that the I end didn't of, know. Okay. Yes, and at the end of the, his life, he be, he started taking getting surgery to become a woman. Gregory has was very troubled, and he seemed to have 
had bipolar disorder and he was brilliant. He became a doctor, but he, he was also uh, very fond of shock treatments. And he said that he had close to a hundred in his lifetime, a very strange guy, but, um, he, um, that was his thing was he liked, and he, he called his father sometimes Ernestine. Now, I'm not saying at all that, first, I don't think he was even bisexual. He had, didn't have a homosexual, I mean, he did not. Gregory or, or Ernest? Ernest. Yeah. He did not want to sleep with men. In, in um, I joke, but it was actually closer to the truth is that he might have most wanted to be a lesbian with another woman. So, but what, what it was is he's just fascinated with the idea of switching gender back and forth. And you start to see it. It's in um, his journals with Mary. Um, there's a some entries with about um, some hot nights with Mary in Africa, and I don't mean temperature. And Mary would like, Mary would take the name Pete, and he would take the name Catherine. And what he was most interested in was being a girl in these in these um, games. And Catherine, like, oh no, I'm thinking of, oh, Catherine was the character in. Uh, she was. That's right. In the Farewell first, the to first arms. World, farewell. No, yeah, farewell to arms. I, you I know, you start the, the thing is, you start seeing it <laughs> in a lot of places, but well, now you start now you see it, or you're, you're kind of looking for it at, at some level. I think, yeah, there. I think that happens a little bit, and it's, but you don't need to look. Is the is the um, just to have your I eyes mean, open. Burns could not have done this film. It would have been so dishonest. And mm -hmm. even Hemingway scholars don't all like this development, mm -hmm. but they can't deny it either. And it, it, I think all Hemingway, the best Hemingway scholars and biographers are very protective of their subject. You know, and I I do not think that Hemingway wanted to be a trans anything. Mm -hmm. You know, I have no idea. You know, you can't know anything like that. And there was barely anyone. I think Christine Jorgensen was the first um, surgical woman sure, that anyone right. had heard of. And it wasn't something he thought about. I thought that if he were alive now and all this stuff is going on about trans this and that, I think he would have been really interested and, in, uh, you know, not necessarily for his own fantasies, but if just to as a writer, as a journalist. Right. But also to understand his son better and what mm. Gregory was going through. But now, yes, as a journalist, he it was um, anyway, he, he uh, and I always thought that that was very moving, that he would. That's a strange um I don't want to call it a kink, but let's do that as shorthand. It's a strange kink to have, and it takes a certain amount of bravery to admit to, I think. Mm -hmm. And he did, you know, and eventually he and Mary hammered something out. And it was, um, I think he realized he he could no longer continue without exploring it more. And that's what he was doing in Garden of Eden, which was mostly written in his lifetime, but he believed it could not be published until his mother was dead. And not published in his lifetime, I think, too, mm -hmm. because it was so um, explicit. Well, you know, there's the there's the man and the myth, you know, uh, 
to what degree did he did he stop being Ernest Hemingway the the person and uh, Ernest Hemingway uh, you know the myth or is it, as uh, John no is it John Ford I believe it's John Ford that said in Liberty Violence you know when the uh, when the when the fa the fiction is better than the truth, print the fiction. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I'd forgotten that. Yeah, um, I, no, definitely. I, but it was really um, it was not right, and it was in direct conflict with the myth of Hemingway, the super macho. There was a time when, toward his last trip to Africa, where he had the disastrous plane crashes, he fell in love with a native woman. And and when he was back in the States, wanted to get his ear pierced in solidarity with her tribe because the men did something like that when, you know, when X happened. And Mary convinced him with, it was very hard for her to convince him, but she just was saying, Ernest, that's not a good idea. Your readers won't take to that. It's a strange thing to have. And he was like, he didn't care. You know, he wanted to see her pierced anyway, but she talked him out of it. Thankfully, can you imagine Hemingway at Papa and the, his <laughs> white beard incarnation with a pierced ear? Well, I, I can actually. It would have been an interesting uh, thing to see. You know, yeah, what, I, it, I'm sorry. No, just that in another time and place, it, it might have happened, you know. No, he might have been a different person if he were grown up in this uh, this time period. Yes, he might. That's you know, true. we all wanted, you know, we all behaved in a Hemingway-esque uh, fashion. Uh, I was always the opinion that he didn't particularly like women so much as they were necessary to flaunt his his macho image. Uh, but, you know, but that being said, I, I think that his first wife, Hadley, was always a strong influence on him. And uh, she went on to have a, a happier life without him. But if I'm not mistaken, they remained uh, friendly for most of his life or all of his life. Yeah, they were. Well, they, you know, they had the child in common and they, mm -hmm. you know, had to pass him back and forth. And I'm so they were in touch. But then he would call her when he was um, kind of at a bad juncture, at a bad time. Yes, they were. He trusted but, her judgment and he went to her for a certain amount of solace. Oh, I think he did. Yeah. Um, the thing about the uh, the Hemingway myth is part of it says that he was a womanizer, you know, and had four wives. But it, that's just not true. I think you're right that he, one after the other. Uh -huh. Yes, one after the other. But I think he didn't particularly. I mean, he he needed to be married, you know, and he fell in love, and he liked to have sex with women, so mm -hmm. he got married. But he was not a womanizer. I counted, and I thought he might have had sex with seven women maybe and when four of them are wives that's not a lot of affairs no no he was like i guess the elizabeth taylor of men of his generation she could only <laughs> sleep only sleep with a man if she was married to him yes and serial monogamy yeah absolutely well look, i want to talk a little bit about some of the ugly aspects of his personality because uh i always felt i, I just actually i wrote something i think it's coming out in on a Tuesday, he was he was quite contemptible as a human being for as as much of an artist he, as he was. You know, certainly in a in a movable feast, he gets even oh, uh, with Sherwood yeah. Anderson and and particularly Scott Fitzgerald, two yeah. people who had been very kind to him. So he never he never forgot a kindness and paid it back uh, in an ugly fashion. And he was, you know, he was an anti-Semite, not in the Hitlerian thing, but as 
probably in the zeitgeist of the 20s and 30s when it was, you know, kind of okay to be an anti-Semite. Right. I, mean, I don't know. That, I don't know that he would he would have participated, you know, in in killing any of us uh, unnecessarily, <laughs> but uh, but he would prefer not to uh, not to have us in a circle, as uh, Robert Cohn <laughs> is, is described in the uh, in the sun also rises. Right. Well, I'm, Robert, I'm glad you brought Robert Cohn up in connection with anti-Semitism because I think you're right. You know, in his letters, you see it. You know, he'll uh, refer disparagingly to Jewish people and. Um, but it's pretty much what you find in pre-war men of America. that. Yeah, yes. And and it's pretty much what you'd expect. But what I really find shocking is that the sun also rises. He was um, so anti-Semitic about Robert Cohn or Harold Loeb. In, Harold Loeb in real life. You know, in real life. And uh, – and apparently he thought that that was such a good good character trait or something that he put it in this book that, I mean, he didn't know that this book would last forever, but he was willing to put it in a book in very final form, this anti-Semitic portrait. So there's something creepy about that. You yeah, know, it's very it, vicious. Yeah. It, 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 it's kind of like he subscribed to a theory. I, I forget who I should uh, attribute it to uh, at that period would said basically, you know, an anti-Semite is someone that hates a Jew more than is necessary. I think <laughs> he would fall into that. Yeah. You know, I can laugh at it from my perspective, but, uh, but I think funny. that's, well, you know, as a Jew, you know, we kind of find humor in places that other right. people don't, <laughs> right. you know, it's, uh, we can, we can appreciate the wit that was involved in it, not necessarily the, the sentiment, but I think that's you know what it was. You know, it, was, it really wasn't until the late fifties that you know Jews could really get into Harvard in any quantity. Uh, that we could be doctors at at major hospitals. Uh, you know, Albert Einstein Medical Center was a direct, direct result of not being allowed into the Harvard Medical School. Uh, so there, it really my generation is the first generation that really uh, avoided that that stain and the. Uh, denial of opportunities because of that oh yeah it was it was really i mean it was across the board awful and uh, not only in in you know the ultimate expression the the death camps but oh yeah god yeah and uh no i think that casual anti-semitism was very damaging and really only went away when uh, the Holocaust made people see that they could not have this cozy anti-Semitic dialogue anymore. No, I remember there was a, you know, we got onto this subject, but there was a, in 1947, there were two films dealing dealing with anti-Semitism. There was Crossfire, Robert Young, Robert Mitchum, and, and Robert uh, Ryan. Uh, and then there was Gentleman's Agreement, which was kind of, oh, I, yeah. would call, I would call anti-Semitism light. Right. And uh, after seeing it, uh, Billy Wilder was asked his opinion. And he said, well, I guess I, I better I better be nice to Jews in the future. They might turn out to be Gentiles. <laughs> I mean, only only Billy Wilder could quote a line like that. Yes. Off right. the top of his head. <laughs> when we get to get back uh, back to you in this book, we I didn't really want to talk a, a great deal about the novels because I think we we all know them. I think it's more yeah. important to get a little bit of a sense of who he was and how he evolved, which I congratulate you on, on doing so well. 
Has Knopf asked you to uh, add a, an addendum uh, or something that would incorporate your work uh, with uh, Novick uh, and, and Burns into a new edition? You know, no, they haven't, but I think, um, and well, I'm If they're not, listening they, to this, maybe they will. Maybe so, but I don't think they'll put it in a book, though. I, I mean, in my biography, though, I, you know, it's something that, it's a possibility, but I do want to do something about it because I learned so much and I, I, um, yes, I learned from them and, uh, and just for me, it was just, uh, I saw there was, we went, so the other, you know, then they filmed me and so forth. And then they brought about eight of us up to um, Walpole, New Hampshire, which is where Ken Burns lives mm -hmm. and they all work. And uh, he owns half the town. It's a beautiful New England town, you know, with a common and white houses and black shutters. And he didn't pay any taxes up there, of course. But, <laughs> but he had us up there for the rough cut. And we... Um, you know, put us up for a couple of nights and we watched the film as it was. I believe that Ken Burns was doing the narration then just to, as a placeholder. But um, that was amazing because they wanted to hear everything that we thought, you know, about every segment and and things they did listen and there were things that changed. And, and just hearing where the other scholars and the people in the uh, series um, came from and how Hemingway, how they were, you know, Hemingway was part of their lives. It was really fascinating. And just seeing Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, how they worked. For me personally, there was, um, I got this shot of this one of their workrooms and, and they had a a way of listing the topics that they were going to put in each segment. If you follow me, like mm -hmm. here, we're, we're going to talk about Pauline, then we're going to talk about Sun Elsa Rise, you know, in a in order. And I was just flabbergasted because that's exactly how I work. You know, well, it's kind of like I, a story, like a storyboard. You know, yeah, Hitchcock I guess it was is. famous for that in setting up a movie by graphically laying out what was going to happen. So when yeah. he finally got to the shoot, to the shoot, it was pretty much in his head. Yeah. So I was just. It was amazing to me. I think that to biographers, more than scholars, you know, a series like Ken Burns can really is really, really fascinating because it's like, how does he portray a life? Mm -hmm. And he has resources, you know, like people he can talk to that I don't have access to. I mean, mine's really two-dimensional compared to what they can do. So I, I just, I get them mixed up. <laughs> you know, I no, think I would that... be interested at some point to talk to him about his methodology because as a, if you're, when you're shooting a, a film film, uh, you, uh, directors making tons of choices. It's, you know, a million little choices that influence the shape of, of the film. And when you're taking a story like this, uh, once again, you, you, you have a, you can go in any, any number of directions. And if you have a real bias or an ax to grind, uh, you can turn out something that's pretty, un, un, you know, unwatchable or certainly unfair. So to to maintain that balance, to look to tell the story objectively, uh, I, I think is a is a trick and, a, and, a, and an art, I guess. It is, and they, uh, but um, and they, do, but they do not hew to any kind of ideology or any kind of. Um, they're not even like they don't even have favorites among 
you know, scholarly interpretations of the work that that's not what they're about. Sure. You know, they, and yeah, I think there's a lot to learn from what they do. And believe me, I mean, they're so successful. It just does not, even the people make fun of them, you know, the glacial right. pace and the narration, always Peter Coyote and, <laughs> and, and, you know, the close ups, uh, extreme close ups of old photos, but it works. Something that I was really thrilled by in the series was that they managed to convey kind of what the writing was like. And, you know, they had people reading it, but, and they had this, it's a hokey thing where one word would be illuminated and then the next one and then the next and lots of close-ups of typewriters, you know, Mm -hmm. but they work, you know, like you actually see what one of those short stories was constructed like that's hard to do in well a film. you know and you as a, as a writer i'm sure it has a huge impact on you to watch that evolution oh yeah i mean it's they just have and it's probably that i can see it most clearly through the lens of i used to be a literary scholar and a biographer right mm-hmm. i mean and it makes a it makes a real lot of sense to me and i think you're right too that filmmakers could learn a lot from how they're constructed and I'm sure even how they're shot. And just um, things like the choices of um, people that they, I mean, one very odd thing about the series and a lot of people dislike it. They almost always have like a, a writer in residence, like the person who's their famous novelist or whatever they're uh, there or they with, say the civil war film would be the best civil war historian and they go to that person again and again and in the foot yes right exactly so in this one it is none other than edna (laughs) o'brien the irish writer and she's who i think is excellent i really i think she's wonderful but what they got there is not somebody who doesn't model herself on hemingway at all but took apart his language um, and sort of deconstructed it and then reconstructed it in her own way. And it's just amazing. First of all, and it was brilliant to pick her, you know, a woman, first of all, right? Mm -hmm. And then one whose fiction is just totally unlike his. But as it turns out, she's passionate about the art of writing. So it really works. And uh, I think, you know, they... Uh, Tim O'Brien is in it, and um, Jeffrey Wolf, and those, of course, are writers who are much more Hemingway-like mm-hmm. in their fiction. Oh, also and, men. Yeah, and but I think you know to have a, one of them—not that they're both—they're both wonderful in this series, but to have one of them be the main guy, mm-hmm. I, you know, you're not getting at anything new. Where no, no I think I, I, I agreed. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Mary, it's been great to catch up. It's been a long time. Uh, and I remind my listeners, the book is Ernest Hemingway by Mary V. <laughs> Dearborn. Thank which you. Which we yes. now know is we know what the V stands for. <laughs> uh, anyway, con- uh, continued good luck. What is your next project? It's um, Cars and McCullers. Oh, wonderful. So she's another hot mess, but... Um... Uh, it, very different. Yeah, I would look forward to that. Uh, any idea when the manuscript's going to be delivered? 
Yeah, by May 1st. So you got me. I was writing the prologue. Perfect. When called. Perfect. And uh, who is your editor on this book? At, at Knopf? Yeah, it's uh, a woman, uh, Vicki Wilson. Vicki Vicky Wilson, yeah. Who's, yeah. Uh, she actually is writing a, a biography of Barbara Stanwyck. She did. I think she's she's done two volumes. I don't know if they I think they're published by Simon & Schuster. Yes, the and second one's editing, not out yet. Yeah, and she's edited my she's editing my friend uh, Diane Johnson, who is uh, back at Knopf with a book coming out. I think. In, oh, really? In early yeah. early July. Anyway, once again, it's it's been great. I, I hope our I, it's unlikely I'm going to get to Fair Western Massachusetts anytime soon, but but uh, I might get to Paris. You know, get to Paris, and we'll go sit in some Hemingway joint and have <laughs> a couple of pops, as we say. <laughs> okay. And yeah. I'm, thanks, Terrence. Okay. Thank you very I'm, much. Okay. Okay. Thank you for joining us, and please share your comments and suggestions at terrence at paris-expat.com. That's T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E at paris-expat.com. And visit paris-expat.com to sign up for my five weekly newsletters about the City of Light. Until next time, à bientôt à Paris.